2: Hello and welcome to Josh Pugh's Court Heroes, the podcast where me and Connor Kent, hey Connor, hello uh, speak to, I want to say person of interest, but that sounds like they've been involved in some kind of criminal activity. That isn't the case. No, people we're interested in. And this week, mate, I don't know how we've got this guest, I don't know what you've done, what you've (laughs) promised, but we've got Felicity Aston, MBE. We have. Polar Explorer. I mean, absolutely
4: phenomenal. I mean, just genuinely blown away, we're taking away the illusion again that we have recorded this before we've chatted to her we're recording this after we've yeah. chatted to her we're both basically just speechless in a, it's the most yeah.
2: interesting we're in a state of disbelief really <laughs> yeah. it's the most I mean it's so in she is a, unbelievable she's like you'd pay m- money to just listen to her speak yeah and she's come and chatted to us for an hour yeah just an unbelievable person the episode kind of speaks for itself really yeah um, totally but we're kind of obliged to do some light hearted chat before Yeah. So, how how has your week been, Connor? I think we should just get straight into it. Yeah, okay, sorry. No, you've done nothing nothing of note. No, I've just been looking forward to this. Yeah, incredible. Let's start the episode. Out of all the guests we've had, this is uh, the things you've done I'm I'm (laughs) most impressed by. You're an explorer. Is that a is that a title you're comfortable with?
5: Yeah, I went through a phase of being really uncomfortable with that, sort of being very <laughs> self conscious, and then it was just like it's the you know whatever other word you use, people are like, what, what do you mean? But if you say polar explorer, everybody has a pretty good idea in their yeah. head of, yeah. of what I spend my time doing. So <laughs> <laughs> I've gone with it. I've learnt to love it.
2: And is um is that in your nature from when you were a child? Were yours um quite a were you were you a kid look. Explored. We were a kid that kind of got stuck in, and would. No, I
5: mean I remember I, I met up with some friends from my secondary school by accident and we were just chatting about you know what they were all doing, and one of them said, "No offence, Flifty but out of everybody I knew at school, <laughs> you were the least likely to end <laughs> up doing something like this." You know, I wasn't a fan of sports, or I wasn't a tomboy. I wasn't. Um, yeah, I mean, I tried to get out of hockey. Hockey seemed like a lethal idea to me. <laughs> Let's run around with big wooden sticks. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I, I don't know where it came, but I always was, um, you know, really curious uh, about yeah. trying new things. Every time I was given an opportunity to do something different, try something new, I always jumped on it. And and then I started actively seeking out, you know, opportunities and things. I was always on the lookout for uh, different organisations, different... Um, um grant funds and, and things that allowed you to do different stuff. So in that respect
2: it and, follows a pattern. And and why why Antarctica and why why polar exploration? What what is it about the extreme cold <laughs>
5: Yeah, I had some Norwegian friends who got quite annoyed. They were like, why are there so many Brits out here doing this? Like <laughs> you don't even have mountains and sub zero temperatures. What are you all doing here? And it was like, well maybe that's the point. Like you know, it's not in our Backyard, mm. and and maybe that's why it holds such a, a fascination, and uh, and it, it, you know the whole Antarctica thing, it is an unavoidable part of British culture, this whole idea of stoicism and um, being made of the right stuff and, and all that sort of thing. Um, it, it all mixes in. And then my own childhood. I mean, I grew up in southeast of England. It didn't snow very often. Mm. But when it did, you know, the, everywhere I knew was turned into this magical wonderland. and It was a hugely exciting thing. So I wonder if that created a connection between adventure, excitement and snow yeah. and snowy places. So I don't know. It's a hard, hard Mm. thing to pinpoint exactly why something. But Antarctica did Antarctica particularly had a huge fascination for me from the start. Is
4: Antarctica a a snowy wonderland? Is it or is that? (laughs) It can be. I I personally go probably quite cold. Not a lot, you know. Not a lot of safety there. Uh, (laughs) Quite, quite scary. (laughs)
5: It can be really scary. And, you know, I I go to pains because most often when I talk about Antarctica, people are expecting to hear about the miserable stuff. You know, they want to know about the times you (laughs) nearly lost your toes or nearly (laughs) fell into a crevasse and the misery. They want to hear about the misery. And so I don't get to talk so often about just what a beautiful, amazing place it can Mm, be, too. And and so often when I'm asked, you know, what was the best time and what was the worst time, so often often it's exactly the same moment you know you can be skiing through a horrendous blizzard and one half of your brain is going this is awful I'm you know I'm really scared I I don't want to be here I just want to be home what have you done you you idiot why have you put yourself in this position and then the other half of your brain is going wow you know look at this this is amazing this is incredible and and realizing that not many people get to experience that and how fortunate you are to have had that
2: oh absolutely it's um Kind of thinking, you know, as, as a kid, when you when you learn the continents, and uh, you know, somebody will say, "Name the continents." Antarctica's the, it's the one. It's kind of, that's like your your pointless answer, isn't it? <laughs> and so, for you to be drawn to that one, which is at the, so this is all really bad knowledge. Is it the t- at the top of the globe? <laughs> other way, <Is it> <laughs> other way, right? The bottom, the bottom yeah. of the globe, it's down the, south. the so bottom mm-hmm. of the globe. Yeah. <laughs> for, for, for that, you know, under the, for that for that to be the one that captures your imagination, that must there must be something different about you, felicity to <laughs> to other people. Is that is that fair to say?
5: I don't know, it's hard to tell, isn't it? I mean it all sounds very normal to me, but then, you know, to to someone else and and I think that's the thing about um, Antarctica and the polar regions generally is that some people get it and some people don 't mm. and if you 're someone that doesn 't get it, then yeah. I can never explain to you why <laughs> I love it so much, yeah, yeah. and I can you know never make it something that appeals to you and uh, yeah so but but the Arctic and the Antarctic, it 's funny because people do think of them as just too snowy, cold, white places at either end of the planet and Mm. yet they're so different like totally to the point where I believe you could drop me blindfolded randomly in a cold place and say are you in the Arctic or the Antarctic and you would know pretty quickly Mm. where you are. They just feel different Um, and you know for a whole number of reasons Uh, you know there's lots of life in the Arctic there's no life at all in Antarctica there's a native population in the Arctic, there's culture, there's settlements, there's people in Antarctica, there's no human culture or footprint whatsoever yeah. um you know they're just really different places
2: it's um I, I always think you know with being an explorer there must be so, there's so much to it but it's like um it's it's science and it's sport almost you need to be massively <laughs> fit and physically capable but also have the, the 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 knowledge to do it how how did you acquire those skills is that something you kind of pursued when you, you kind of decided this is what i want to do or is it kind of a happy accident that you?
5: Mm, well, I started in science, so my first journey to Antarctica was my first job after <laughs> after university. Yeah, my first proper <laughs> job ever was uh, with the British Antarctic Survey, wow. which is the UK's main government-funded research program in Antarctica and I was posted to um, one of their two research facilities uh, down in Antarctica. And, you know, I think back on it now, I you know, I was 23 and I'd got a job Firstly, which is amazing when you leave university. I remember going home to tell my parents, and I was like, you know, I've got a job, and they're like, oh, well. I'm like, it's in Antarctica. Oh, that's really exciting. I'm going for three years, you know, and and you won't hear from me, you can't contact me, you won't see me. You know, yeah. I mean it's only now, I think you know twenty odd years on when i 'm a parent myself that I realized just what a thing wow, that was to yeah. you know yeah. it was like i wasn't it was just a big adventure to me at twenty three yeah. it was yeah. i didn 't think twice about it was so, like yeah, brilliant, you know send me down there um
4: when it, when you're there, what are you there to do in that in that first job?
5: Well, my job was as the station meteorologist, so yeah. I was doing weather observations and uh, maintaining kind of long-term climate monitoring um, and looking at ozone as well, which was a big thing then. Um, But then you're part of a station crew, which in the summer it's a really busy place with lots of people coming and going. There can be up to 85 people at any one time on the base. But then in winter, it's the exact opposite. Um, everyone leaves apart from a skeleton crew of about 20. Mm. And you don't get any say in who those 20 people yeah, are. Yeah. <laughs> sure. And, you know, some of them are wonderful. And others, you know, pretty quickly, you're like, I'd never want to see them.
4: <laughs> <laughs> And um, imagine it's probably quite hard to sort of, you know, when you just feel like you need a bit of space and want to go for a walk. Imagine when you're in somewhere like that, it's quite hard to just go and get a bit of space. Right.
5: Uh, yeah, I mean, I had, had, so I had two winters there consecutively, one after the other. And the first winter, um, I think the fact we had really bad weather. So for weeks on end, it was really difficult just to go from one building to the other. We Mm. had to have ropes that you followed uh, because you couldn't see the other building (laughs) from the building you were in. And so it meant that exactly as you're saying, you're all sort of cooped up and, um, and there's not much, you know, these 20 people, you're sitting down with the same people to have breakfast, mm. lunch and dinner every single day. And in the evenings, if you want to sit at the bar and have a drink, you've got the same selection of yeah. people <laughs> to choose from. Um, but, but there is a bar. There is a bar there. there. Oh, yeah. That's the most important part of the British <laughs> research base is the bar. Um, and it was a reason why we were a very popular call for some of the research ships, um, yeah. particularly the American research ships were completely dry. So they were always gunning <laughs> for reasons yeah. to come and call in at the British bases because uh, we had a bar.
2: And who... <laughs> so- no one's there purely as a, as a barman, are they? Yeah.
5: <laughs> no, no. Oh, this is one of the... So there's all sorts of strange things when you're living on an Antarctic research base. But one of the strange <laughs> things you're preparing to go down is they ask you for your um, booze order, basically. So it's called a bond. And you order the alcohol that you would like for an entire seven months, oh, wow. and this order gets delivered to you on a pallet, you know, like a shipping yeah. pallet, as a you know huge cube of whatever you've asked for—wine, beer, spirits, whatever—and yeah. um, it really, yeah, makes you think about oh my God, you know, yeah, am, I tri- yeah. am I drinking too much yeah. because that looks like too much yeah. when it gets delivered to you I, on I, a pallet? I always think
2: that about the big shop, you know, when you see it on the, when you see it on the conveyor belt and you see. see Within a week, all of that food is going to be in, inside my stomach. <laughs> to, to see it laid out like that, it must be, that's, yeah. uh, that's, yeah. that's, that's what, greater.
4: What, what other opportunities does someone get to see the seven months of booze that they're going to drink?
2: Right. No, no, no one else gets yeah. to see that. and it's, it's. I suppose it's a self-fulfilling thing. If you, you're going to drink what you order, you're going to, you know... It,
5: well, it, it becomes currency as well because, are, yeah. you know, some people drink all their booze in the first couple of months and then have got nothing. So, yeah. you know, the the what you can bargain for a, a bottle of wine or a six-pack of beer increases <laughs> yeah. as we go through <laughs> the winter. Um, so it becomes currency. And, mm. and
2: then it's a kind of... Um, is there any decompression process when you when you come home? Are you you just spat back into Britain and trains and cities and or is a kind of you know, Because that's <laughs> like that, from north from such sparsity back into it must be a lot when I come down yeah. to London from. The Midlands, I get a bit overwhelmed. <laughs> so, from yeah, Antarctica, it,
5: it was a lot. But I mean, at the time, so this was 2000 to 2003, and mm. the British Antarctic Survey was quite unusual amongst all the different national programmes that were there, in that. You know you were selected not on the base of basis of um, psychological testing or anything like that mm-hmm. um, Instead it was a half an hour interview with three people who had previously spent a winter in antarctica wow. um, and you know there's there's pros and cons to both of those methods of doing things but uh but yeah it was there were there was no um formal intervention um you just went home. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and it was really strange. I remember arriving back in the Falklands and um Going to a cafe with some people, and there were children in the cafe, yeah, well, and I'd been in a totally adult world for three years, and I got yeah. totally freaked out by children. It was like, oh my goodness, they're like mini people. It was really <laughs> weird. And uh, and the air felt thick with things. You know, he here mm. I felt like oh, I was having to duck to avoid bugs and leaves, and you know, it yeah. just and the yeah. air itself just that felt really thick. Um, yeah. But and then other things really didn't surprise me. Like I remember when I finally got back to the UK, because I, I worked my own way back up through South America. So I spent quite a long time. And I wonder if actually that was my response yeah, to the decompression yeah, was yeah. that I spent about seven months just getting home um, before I finally arrived back in the UK. And I remember jumping in a car and driving. And I was, I don't know, 10, 20 minutes down the road before I realised, gosh, this is the first time I've driven a car in yeah. three or four oh, years, wow. you know. Um but I think there's a lot of things that you don't forget. You know, I was 23 by the time I went down. You've had 23 years of yeah. training in yeah. society, so you know how you're supposed to behave mm. and you know what's normal. Yeah, it's and not, I suppose, I
2: mean, you know, you're not, it's, not, um, it's not Lord of the Flies, you know. You're kind of, you're, you're there with other...
5: I don't know, it had its moments. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> and if you've
2: got any contact with the, the outside world there, if you kind of, is there systems where you can...
5: Um, it's a lot better now than it yes. was 20 years ago. So back then we didn't have internet connection, but we yeah. did have a satellite link up twice a day. So we had something that looked like email. Yeah. <laughs> but they all arrived. All these emails sort of arrived at once and left at once. And it, I remember we had one megabyte allowance a month, and if oh. we went a kilobyte over that, uh, we were charged a pound per kilobyte uh, if we went over. Oh. So you know, I remember writing emails with no spaces between <laughs> words and <laughs> no <laughs> punctuation because that was just a waste. I mean digital photography was in its infancy so uh, you know there was one digital camera on base and the pictures were really big so you know you didn't send Mm, pictures you could ring home via a satellite phone but it was hugely expensive so I used to ring home on my mum's birthday and at Christmas Yeah, that was it Um, so we really I mean I was there throughout uh, 2001 so 9-11 happened when I was on a base in Antarctica and we had heard what had happened but it wasn't until the first people returned um, at the beginning of the Antarctic summer that one of the pilots came down. And he he got all the people that had wintered together, and he said, "I hope this doesn't seem strange, but you know I've brought with me a video of nine eleven because you guys haven't seen it." And so yeah. we all went in this tiny dark room and watched a video. Of 9-11 unfolding and we went through all the same emotions that everyone else did um, but just delayed by a couple of months and yeah. and you know if somebody tells you a tower fell down yeah pre 9 the way you would imagine a tower falling down is, is yeah. kind of... I don't know how you describe that, but it, it, you, know, you imagine... Like a tree being fell. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so the moment when we saw the towers fall down for the first time, I mean, we all gasped, we all cried, we all had that yeah. same kind of moment of disbelief that everyone else had had, just delayed by
1: yeah.
5: a long time. And then, of course, you know, one of the common <laughs> jokes when you arrive on an Antarctic research station, particularly when you're going through a winter, is, OK, what if... Armageddon happens and we're the only survivors, you know, what would we do? And of course, then with the fallout of 9-11, it looked quite likely that there was (laughs) going to be some kind of Armageddon and we might well be the only survivors. So it it put a different sort of tilt on the whole thing.
2: Did you lead teams, expeditions before you did solo?
5: So, yes. Yeah. yeah. So it was a sort of gradual progression. Yeah. So when I left Antarctica, um, while I was in Antarctica with Bass, I'd done a bit of traveling around. But the way that you travel in Antarctica with the British Antarctic Survey is very particular. Uh, it's become very formalized over over the years and for good reason. You know, yeah. safety is first and, and it's all belt and braces. And then when I left Antarctica, I wanted to experience the Arctic and other cold places. And I learned a whole new way of traveling. Traveling In the polar environment, which was more about being lightweight and fast. And mm. um, and so then I was keen to put together my own expeditions and see if I could find a sort of happy medium between those two ways of doing things. So mm. I started putting together small teams to go and make journeys in places like Greenland and, and the Arctic. Um, and then eventually headed back down south and I put together an international team of women to go to the South Pole. The reason I laugh is because, you know, I'm always being told off by friends and family about, you always make life so difficult for yourself. Why I? So I'm just laughing because my first ski expedition to the South Pole, I decided to put together an international team of novices <laughs> to ski to the South Pole with me. And I wanted to prove the point because, you know, when you say polar explorer to people, You know, even now, the image that initially flashes in your mind, I bet, is most likely to be, you know, a six foot Norwegian with a beard. Um, And so I wanted to create a team that looked as least like that as I could possibly manage. So I went to countries like Brunei Dar es Salaam on the island of Borneo, Ghana in West Africa, Jamaica, Cyprus, places that you don't associate with polar exploration. And those are the countries that I went to to try and recruit my team. So I had the least possible convention <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that I could muster for for this team. And it was brilliant because they absolutely aced it. You know, they had, yeah. did an amazing job. We skied from the coast of Antarctica to the South Pole in 38 days, which is respectable in anybody's book wow. um, to cover that distance, about 900 kilometers or so. Um, and, you know, they had an amazing story to tell, which yeah. has been really powerful ever since, because, you know, it isn't a six foot did Norwegian telling you that they've skied to the South Pole. It's a barely five foot, yeah. wiry, strong but very petite um, Asian woman telling yeah. you that she was the first person from her country to ski to the South Pole and yeah. I think that's a really powerful message. Oh,
2: totally.
4: When you're um, when you're recruiting someone, are you trying to work out if, if they could do that or do you just sort of believe I can sort of guide you through that regardless of it, even if you think you can't do that right now?
5: Yeah, I mean there is um, there is an element of I can give you everything you need. You know, I can Mm. give you the physical training. I can give you the mental training. I can give you the skills and the, you know, the practical knowledge. But the one thing that I can't bring about is that motivation and Mm. desire to want to do it, that determination. You know, what is going to make you get up before work to go for that training run or to make that hundredth call to a potential sponsor um, when you've been turned down a million times already. Um, You know, all those sacrifices that you have to make um, in order to make an expedition like that possible. um, What is going to make you do that? And, you know, if someone's talking to me about... They want to see polar bears or penguins or, you know, something uh, um, that a desire just for notoriety. They don't really matter how it happens. They Mm. just, if I get a sense of that, then I'm thinking, I'm not sure this is going to be enough to to carry you through. But then, you know, I've had people tell me stories. um, Like I remember Sophia from Singapore, my teammate on that South Pole expedition. She told me that when she was filling in uh, the application form, her 14-year-old daughter had looked over her shoulder and went, oh, God, Mom. Do it. like, that's so embarrassing. They're never going to want someone like you. You know, what? what's that? That's so ridiculous. As only a 14 year old teenager, yeah. I think, can. <laughs> You know, just like, oh, you know. And uh, so she said to me, you know, I really want to be part of this team and get to the South Pole to prove to my daughter that you need to have dreams and ambition in life mm. and that they do come true, you know, if you follow it through. And I thought, I can see how that is going to make yeah. you go through hell and high water <laughs> to yeah. make that point to your yeah. daughter. Um, so I knew she was going to be a great. Teammate, and she was. She was fantastic.
2: That's amazing. And there's a you touched on the the other side of it there. I know a guy who um he rode the Atlantic, and he has to you have to fund you have to fund the the expeditions. He had to kind of fundraise and get sponsors. That I can't imagine. That's a massively fun element of it. Is that <laughs> is that difficult? For, is yeah. it hard to get secure funding and stuff?
5: yeah the the expedition itself is the reward yeah the real feat of endurance is the (laughs) two three four years that it takes you to get to that start line and and it's not fun you know i spend a lot of my time with spreadsheets making risk assessments environmental impact surveys um and you know the the this whole sponsor. i mean i've been very fortunate i've had brilliant sponsorship relationships but you know there are elements to it that aren't necessarily fun you know the element of sort of selling yourself a bit you know, yeah. you know I've had people say to me in the past oh I could never do you know I could never um, you know, do that side of things and I'm like well then you won't get the sponsorship and you won't yeah. make these yeah. things happen you know you've got to uh, yeah, you've got to decide, I guess, what you're uh, willing to do to to make things happen. And and it's the, unsi- it's the unseen side of expeditions. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm aware that sometimes people talk to me as if I pick these things out of a catalogue. You know, what are you going to do next? <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, well, I'll just flick through this catalogue and decide what I want to... You know, you have to when I'm deciding what is the next project, I've got to think about, am I willing to sacrifice three, four years of my life mm. working yeah. towards making this happen? Does it mean that much to me that I'm willing to, yeah. to do mm. that? And uh, and I've got a lot better at being more selective over the years yeah. <laughs> than I was...
2: That I was must be hard in terms of your preparation because things can fall through, can't they? You know, you've got to be doing all the physical preparations and stuff, but you can have funding fall through or so that must be hard is it hard to prepare without the security of all well, this is definitely happening at mm. least that must be quite challenging
5: it's funny I mean the whole thing about sort of preparing for uncertainty in the unknown um, you know Covid has done us a huge favour because I think everyone's more familiar now with this idea of you know, adapting to change and uncertainty is a skill just like any other you yeah. have to learn and train for. And uh, the polar environment particularly is very good at training you for that. So from the very beginning, you know, that I've done anything in the polar regions, the weather is supreme leader. You know, if the yeah. weather is no good, then you're not doing anything and you don't get the final say. It's, yeah. um, it's the place itself that decides. So you have to get used to very quickly... Um, sort of accepting that and being able to say, and some people really can't and I've you know witnessed people become totally unstitched because they can't implement any control over that situation mm, yeah. and they cannot adapt to the idea of not having control um, and so early on it was embedded in me that we have to train for this and we have to prepare for it and uh, and so we do quite a lot of um, plan <laughs> plans A through to yeah Z to the power of a million. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, it it is still difficult. So, for example, uh, for the last five years... I've been trying to get back out to the North geographic pole. So this is the Arctic top of the world. Um, and every year, you know, we've planned up until about sort of three weeks before we were due to go. Mm. And then the plug has been pulled and there's an absolute no go. You cannot go uh, for various reasons. Um, and so we've had to get really good at turning on a sixpence and deciding, okay, do we do nothing? Do we change our plans and do something else? Um, and that's what we've done each time. And, uh, and, you know, with my team in that instance, you know, when we did finally go out, you know, things were a bit chaotic. Things were a bit rushed. And uh, and people forget that we've put this together in three weeks, guys. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if, you, if you put together an expedition from scratch in, in three weeks, just normally, um, people would look at you like, you're insane. And I'm like, considering that's what we've done, this is amazing. You know, yeah, yeah. But people forget how difficult it is to sort of pick yourself up and... And move forward when uh, it feels like everything's crumbling.
4: When um, what what is the uh, what's the goal? You know this five year thing. You keep on trying to go back. What's the what's the ultimate goal for going?
5: Yeah. So this one is um, scientific research. So we're trying to collect snow, ice, and water samples from the Arctic Ocean as high latitude, as high up as we can get on the planet, Um, and we're using those samples to look for different types of pollution uh, particularly black carbon heavy metals and microplastic and microplastic is the bit that I'm really passionate about because we've got really used to the idea of marine microplastic so all the plastics washing around in the ocean you know 10 years ago we weren't so sort of savvy about that but now we know quite a lot about it. it's quite a lot of awareness but in the last five years um, people have realized that microplastic is also airborne it's in the air we're breathing and it's reaching the most remote parts of our planet um, through the atmosphere and the reason why that's um, so alarming is because they're also finding it in our bodies so I, I can guarantee yeah. that if we were all to have a blood test in this room they would find evidence of plastic in all our bodies yeah. but they're also finding it in things like human placenta so they can't yeah. test babies Gosh, yeah. obviously but the inference being that you know babies are being born with plastic in their system and yeah. what's really scary if we're going to have a moment of doom and gloom mm. is that the worry is not necessarily the plastic material itself it's the fact that that plastic can act as a transport mechanism for all sorts of toxins that mm. they put in the plastic mm-hmm. when they make it, when they manufacture yeah. it. And they, the toxins that they use, you know, they're, they're things that are known to cause human beings various health problems. And so, you know, we're ingesting it, um... With, without our kind of knowledge. So we're going up to the Arctic to to do this uh, testing. We've been trying to because the window for getting out onto the Arctic Ocean is getting smaller and smaller. And when I set out five years ago to try and get to the North Pole to take these samples, part of my motivation was that I knew that within a few years it wouldn't be possible to get to the North yeah. Pole anymore. Um And I turned out to be more correct than I realised at the time because we have not managed to get back out to the North Pole since. So the last person that skied from land to the North Pole did it in 2014. And it's largely believed that it's never going to be possible again. Um, So now you can only make partial journeys to the North Pole. So you start from some point on the ice and and ski to the North Mm -hmm. Pole. Um, But even that, uh, as we stand here today, I am the last person to have skied to the North Pole, me and my team, back in 2018. And I really hope I don't have that sort of footnote in history. That's not a distinction Mm -hmm. that you want particularly.
2: When I think of you know somebody doing such an extreme journey like that, my assumption was that that the, the motivation for that would be for a sense of you getting there and and, and doing it. But what you're describing there is you're, you're motivated by the, the science and the research element. Is, is that is that always been the case, or is it kind of is it a bit of both? If you know if if if, if I was to do something like that. It'd be for my own my own feel good factor. But you're 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 not driven in that same way, is that a different motivation?
5: I found that every expedition has been driven by a different set of drivers and motivators. So, you know, back in two thousand and five, six, when I was putting together my first independent expeditions, I was motivated primarily by curiosity about whether i could do it you know proving something to myself not to other people but to myself you know can i do it can i lead a team like this um you know curiosity about what kind of leader i would be of a of a team like that and then over time uh you know the challenges have become different so then it was about putting together these really unusual teams and making the teams more complex um And then about the journeys, Uh, you know, what kind of journeys can we do? Um, I mean, a a lot of my team expeditions have been, I've put together mostly all female expeditions and those have really been motivated by a greater awareness in me. As I got older and travelled to more places, I came across, you know, so many societies where it is a default assumption that women are not, Capable of a whole load of stuff, or mm. not as capable as men, and that our brains are different, and you know, all sorts of yeah. absolute rubbish. And unfortunately, you know, that I am one of the lucky few al- women alive in the world today who have had power and agency over my own life to make my own decisions mm. and to decide what I do and what, I- and sadly. In the world today, which I see as my watch, you know, the globe today is our watch, right? <laughs> yep. We're alive now. Um, and, you know, the majority of women, I would say, in the world alive now don't have that same freedom and power over their own lives. And and have to deal with, um, yeah, that that assumption that somehow we are inferior or less and uh And that really annoys me. And so I start thinking, okay, well, what can I do about that? You know, I'm not a politician, uh, I don't make policy. um, But what I do do well is put together expeditions. And so I tried to put together expeditions that addressed this. subject in a positive way you know I didn't want to march around with placards I, I wanted to do something that sent a positive message and so these expeditions have have been a, about that but then you know I did about 10 years of doing that yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then I think the real change was when I went to the Arctic uh, to the North Pole for the first time I spent um, two months going backwards and forwards from the coast of Siberia to the North Pole on board the most powerful ship in the world. It's 76,000 horsepower. It's a nuclear-powered icebreaker uh, called the 40 Years of Victory. It's a Russian ship. And um, and, and just moving through the Arctic Ocean, it was, you know, just to see the power of nature on display you know blocks of ice the size of an apartment just you know rolling over as big sheets of ice get forced together by the ocean underneath and the the atmosphere above um, or ripped apart to form just these huge areas of open water it was stunning to see it and it was so powerful and yet i knew with my scientist brain that this was a really fragile environment that was disappearing yeah. in, in front of our eyes, and the rate of change in the Arctic has been really astonishing. I mean my background is in meteorology and climate, mm. so you know I'm really well versed in what is going on and from many years. but you know to actually see it and witness it and um, and experience that how rapid that change has been has is, is shocked even me
2: yeah. mm. how how is it how does it feel? Listen, this might be hard to explain. How how does it feel being in that environment you've just described by yourself? Presumably, is it boat? You you get, you get. So, if you if you're going to the Antarctic, you you go to the Falklands. You mentioned is that always the route?
5: Yeah. So yeah. Uh, one of the differences between the Arctic and the Antarctic, the Arctic is a big frozen ocean and yeah. it's surrounded by landmass and the Antarctic is the exact opposite. So it's a landmass surrounded by water. Mm. So to get to Antarctica, you either have to sail or you have to fly. Yeah. And the opportunities for flying are pretty slim. So you can fly from the Falklands, you can fly from South Africa, or you can fly from New Zealand, uh, from Christchurch. Um, and then you can sail. So there are whole, you know, there's increasing numbers of ships that now sail, um, mostly down the coast of South America, and then they hop across to the sort of finger of land that sticks out of Antarctica, called the Antarctic Peninsula. Um, that's uh, some ships come from the other side, come from Australia or New Zealand, and, and hit the other side of the continent. But uh, um, but yeah, it's it's a pretty impressive sea journey to make and you know people want to skip that part because the seas around Antarctica are notoriously awful and I'm, I'm a terrible sailor yeah. I mean the first time I went south was on a ship from Fort Falkland Islands and it took us three weeks because it was a research crew so this ship had to continuously stop in the middle of really big seas to survey the sea floor and I mean I was just sick every day for about three weeks and, and I wasn't alone. I remember going up to the doctor's office to get some more um, seasickness medication and there was just like an ice cream tub by his door with a sign saying Help yourself, <laughs> he was, and it was full of all these different pills and potions because he was so ill he, he yeah. couldn't see anybody. So no. I, I wasn't alone, but um, yeah. So the big, but I think you know, sailing to Antarctica gives you a sense of where you are going. You are literally yeah. going to the ends of the earth, yeah. and it still is. You know, it's not somewhere that's been. Tamed by modern technology because you know there is no infrastructure there still yeah. um, even the settlements the research settlements that are kind of around the coast they all have to be temporary now under the mm. Antarctic Treaty yeah. that, that governs Antarctica and so um, you know they, they, you don't get a mobile phone signal you, you don't get right. you know there are no cell phone masks there's no you don't see vapor trails of planes in the sky yeah, because well. aircraft avoid. Uh, commercial aircraft avoid Antarctica I, um,
2: and, and you you dropped off and the ship goes.
5: Uh, so when I've done ski expeditions, I've been taken in by plane. Okay. Um, so you fly in from uh, either South America or South Africa, and I've done both of those. And it's weird because they're in the height of summer because it's uh, yeah. the Southern Hemisphere summer. So you're kind of, saying Cape mm. Town, you know, shorts and T-shirt, and you get on this plane, it's baking mm-hmm. hot. And then six hours later... Um, they open the doors and you're in minus 20 Antarctica. <laughs> and it's, you, know, you have to do a quick change on the plane, otherwise <laughs> yeah. you get uh, caught out. Um, but then you're usually taken to a start point by a smaller plane. So yeah. they have uh, small twin engine planes with skis on rather than wheels um, that can take you to various points around the continent yeah. and uh, depending on where you're starting a your journey. Wow.
2: That I just can't imagine the feeling of that plane going again and it's just you and the environment.
5: Yeah, when I did my Sailor across Antarctica, I thought I prepared really well. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd done my due diligence, you know. I'd been to see psychologists and I'd done training and I'd, you know, talked to people that had been alone before. I thought, yeah, I, I'm prepared, I'm ready for this. Yeah. And then... Oh, those first few seconds as I watched that plane fly away I realized you are not prepared for this (laughs) and that shock of that isolation that you're talking about it was it it, it felled me completely Mm, Um, you know and and my response to that initial shock sort of played out over the next two months really Um, so to start with you know i I had the response I think most people would have. I burst into tears. I was like, "What have you done? you know this is horrendous how are yeah. you gonna how are you gonna get through this and you try and control that that fear that paralyzes you um and on some days, I was more successful than others. You know there are just things that make that fear bubble up again to the surface, and you sort of push it down and yeah. then it comes back again and you know so people talk about conquering your fear. I don't think I would ever have presumed to conquer it. It was constantly there. it was just whether I could make it bearable that day yeah. and not in order to get something done or not um
4: when you're doing a solo trip, is there? Um, do you have any human interaction whatsoever for that period of time? Or?
5: Yeah, no. It's, it's funny because I, I, I got lots of questions about. Oh, but you know, there was a car following you, wasn't there? And it's like no. <laughs> yeah. But where was the camera crew? And I was like, there were no crew. <laughs> yeah. It was it was just me on my own. But I did have to. Um, I was obliged to make a satellite phone call once a day, mm-hmm. um, to call into like a logistical centre that. Um, notes your last position so my fail safe if you like was if they didn't hear from me in any 24 hour period Mm -hmm. uh, they would raise the alarm and they would go back to my last known position to start looking for me Mm -hmm. Um, you know that seems like a really good safety net until you're skiing and maybe you're six or eight hours into your ski since you've lost your last no- since you've left your last known position yeah. so you're six or eight hours skiing away from that last known position and uh, you think well if I fall into a here, <laughs> you know no one's gonna raise the alarm for another I don't know 16, yeah. <laughs> 16 or so hours and then they're gonna come back and try and find I've probably left a tiny little hole in the surface um, that's quick being covered up by snow and drift and all the rest of it, and they're gonna fight, you know. It's so suddenly <laughs> it feels like it's got large holes in this safety net. So, um, yeah, some days that was more reassuring than others. But yes, I did um, speak to somebody once a day, and it's interesting that the person on the other end of the phone to start off with, they would try and talk, they were aware I was on my own, so they would, you know, just give me bits of news and try and be chatty. But very quickly, I couldn't bear it. And so it became just a straight transfer of information. So the, the call would ring on and I'd say, it's Felicity. This is my position. Give them my position. I'm safe and well. And I would cut it off before they had an opportunity to say anything. Um, And I actually apologised to the radio. You still call them radio operators, even though it's all satellite comms now. But I apologised to the radio operator. I was like, you know, I'm I'm sorry. I just couldn't. And they were like, it's fine. You know, we totally understand. Um, Different people deal with it in different ways. But I couldn't get... I mean, with that satellite phone, I could have rung anybody that I wanted at any time. But I I didn't... didn't, You know, I wasn't ringing my family every day or anything, or friends, or... Because to have that connection... I was worried that when I, you know, when I then cut off the phone call, that that loneliness and isolation would be too much to bear. A
2: mm. um, real layman question for So, how, how are you you're navigating? Is it, is it is it GPS? Is it environmental? Clues, what, what, is it, how does it work? Yeah,
5: it's a whole mix of things. So because you're quite close to the magnetic poles and geomagnetic poles, uh, using a compass to navigate with is quite complicated because mm-hmm. there's uh, lots of you know, calculations you need to do c- to correct for different things. And when you're mentally and physically tired, I wasn't confident that I would have the capacity to be doing that reliably. Um, So I had a compass because then the other side of the coin is, well, if you rely completely on GPS, on satellite navigation, you know, those GPS devices, they all need batteries. Um, They need power. And you can't take a sledge load of batteries with you. So you have to kind of have a happy medium. So I would use the um, GPS to give me a spot location, which you can't do with a a, a compass. Um, But then during the day... I would uh, dial in a bearing on the compass and, uh, and use that mostly but you mentioned environmental factors I mean because the sun is in the sky 24 hours a day it's literally just making circles above your head so if the sun was out um, I could use my shadow quite a lot Um, but obviously the sun's moving so you have to remember every couple of hours to uh, but you you lose track of time as well you know to start off with I was really conscious of I have to keep my mind busy and you know I'd play games in my head and I'd make up sequels to books I'd read recently or films I'd seen or anything Thing to keep my mind busy but then as the weeks passed you know suddenly I I'd, I'd think well, I would get to the end of my day and i be like what have I thought about today and I couldn't remember a single thought that had passed through my head it was like an extreme form of meditation because when you're skiing on cross country skis you've got poles you're dragging a sledge it's quite rhythmical and then mm-hmm. all you can hear is your own breathing breathing yeah. in and out in and out and the thump of blood in your ears so it's it's a bit like entering some kind of meditative state and yeah. I would regularly lose track of time and then if you're skiing through a whiteout which was more often than not I mean whiteout is a term that is used really flippantly but when you've experienced a real whiteout where there is no form no shadow no orientation no colour no shape it's just a blank grey spongy nothingness and you know you stretch your arm out in front of you and, and your fist is getting a bit hazy you know it's it's that kind of nothing um you know and you're staring into that not just for a couple of hours but day after day after day after day you know these whiteouts can can last forever and uh, and you you begin to doubt it's not just that you don't know where you are or you get a bit confused. You begin to doubt that there's anything else out there. Mm. You begin to feel, and it sounds strange to say it here, but you start to feel like I am the only thing that exists and yeah. there is nothing else but just what I can see directly in front of me. And um, yeah, it's your brain goes to some really strange places.
2: Do you, do you take anything from home? Anything, you know, a, a, a ring or, you know, something from the real... From, yes, from real some life. people
5: do. I've found, you know, I can't take, like, photos of... Fa- I find that if I allow myself to think of family even, mm. you know, I'm in tears. I mean, it's weird being on your own um, because when there's no one else to see, I found that if I had even slight emotions... I would be expressing those emotions like at full spectrum so if I was just a little bit like feeling a bit lonely I would be in floods of tears and if I found something funny I would be cackling to the sky if I was angry Uh I'd be throwing my ski poles on the ground and roaring at the sky and you would switch between those emotions like in seconds Mm -hmm. I'd be from bawling my eyes out to laughing hysterically to shouting at the sky in you know just seconds and it it, it is the closest I've ever felt to losing my mind um, because You know, just the strength of all those emotions. It's too much.
4: Yeah. Uh, quite a, a, a. Where do you sleep? <laughs>
5: in a tent so I have a little tent that was about if I held my arms outstretched either side of me that was about as wide as the tent was and then it was as long as my body um, and then there was a little bit of extra space at one so it was like a little entranceway at one end and that's where I would cook and how I'd get in and out of the tent and then it was just literally enough room for me to sleep and it was one of the biggest things to adjust to when I got back you know amazingly you don't need much to feel totally satisfied you know, I had exactly what I needed and nothing more than I needed in that tiny space. And it was great and then I came home and suddenly I had to, whatever I needed I had to go into a different room to go and get, you know, I had to physically <laughs> yeah, go and get yeah. and it, it drove me insane yeah. very just, and mm-hmm. then the first time I went to a supermarket, I got overwhelmed with decision fatigue, I think they call it, and yeah. I left that supermarket with nothing, you know, yeah. I needed toothpaste, yeah. there were 20 million toothpastes, yeah. you, Went needed some bread, a mi- whole aisle of bread and yeah. it was like, I, I, cannot, I cannot do this many decisions all at once and I left with nothing because it was too much and uh mm. it really i would love to tell you that this made me become less materialistic and yeah. i totally you know totally it, but no you know you, that, you lose that pretty quick but, you know.
2: so you, you get you get there you, you get to where you're headed obviously there's firstly is there a physical how, how do you know you're there firstly and and, and secondly what what is the feeling because mm. you've still got to get back
5: yeah so uh, when I reached the end of my journey, you said, well, how do you know when to stop? I really didn't. So I looked down at my GPS and I knew I was now standing on ice that was over water, Mm. not ice over land, because Antarctica, there really isn't any physical reference. You know, you can be at the edge of the landmass, but you're not going to see a coast as we would understand it, you know, Mm. sea and beaches and things like that, because the ice rolls out over the ocean for another, I don't know, five or six hundred kilometres, so... There's nothing to see. There's no visual uh, indicator that you've reached the edge. Um, so I, I looked at my GPS and I, I knew from the coordinates that I was now on the Ronnie Ice Shelf in my case. So that meant I was over water. So I'd crossed the entire landmass, which is what I set out to do. Um but I just kept going because it was a sense of momentum that, mm-hmm. um, you know, like a lorry changing down through the gears. It was like, OK, I, I can stop now. <laughs> you know, I yeah. don't I don't have to keep going. And this whole fear factor played a role, too, because I'd been going through an area where I knew there was crevassing and I knew I couldn't see those crevasses. So I was rigid with the fear because I was cognitive of the fact that, you know, any minute I could just disappear through something. And, you know, running that gauntlet day after day it kind of makes you rigid so I I sort of didn't want to stop but at the same time it was such a relief to stop because now I knew the plane had to Mm. come to me I didn't have to go any further the plane could come to me because it's got skis on so it can land on snow so it could land literally right by my tent so I remember I I rang up the sort of logistical base and I said because I knew they were waiting for my call because this is the Mm. other thing that I don't get to talk about very much but the Antarctic season ends And it's a hard end, like everybody leaves before the first winter storm has (laughs) come. And it's not like, oh, it's the last train. You know, it's everybody leaves the continent. So they are not going to leave you behind. They're going to come and get you. And Mm. so for a good, I don't know, two, three weeks... The problem had been if I don't get to the end before they need to come and get me, um, you know, I'm going to be maybe 50 kilometres from the end and they come and get me. And, oh, you know, after yeah. two months yeah. of all of this, it's like, oh, that is like yeah. the worst scenario. So I knew they were really anxious um, to hear from me and I knew they'd really pushed it for my sake. So they were letting me be out there a lot longer than yeah. they would let somebody else that they didn't know as well or, you know. Um, and so <laughs> I rang them up and they're like, great, we'll be there within the hour. So call back in an hour, give us weather and they'll be ready to fly to you. So I had to give them weather so that the pilots, you know, they'd need an hour to get the plane ready and everything and then they'd have a final check that the weather was okay where i was where they were all the mm-hmm. distance in between and then they would be able to fly out to come and get me so um i ate all the food that i had i <laughs> uh you know just used everything because i was like oh i'm going i'm going home i'm going home you know i don't have to worry about this anymore this is great and uh and then i rang them back in an hour and i remember steve's what he was just like, oh, Felicity, i'm so sorry." <laughs> <laughs> the weather's changed we we can't come and get you um, and that was it he promised me a box of red wine it, so he'd said <laughs> he said we're going to come and get you within the hour and when you get here I'll have a box of red wine waiting for you and that was the worst thing cuz when he said oh, yes. oh no You're sorry we, we can't yeah, yeah exactly that was the first thing that's popped into my head was oh my goodness no red wine um but then I realized as I started pitching my tent I was like I've eaten all my food (laughs) I've eaten every, you know I'd even eaten you know that peanut left in the bottom of my pocket (laughs) I'd eaten everything I think I had one instant coffee pouch left and uh and yeah and, and something else but you know that that was it but I was there for 24 hours um In the end, before they could come and get me. Wow. (laughs) And in actual fact, I'm very grateful for that now because um, it gave me just a moment to sort of process what what was happening. But you said, what does it feel like? And there was no sense of um, achievement or pride or celebration because... Nothing had changed. You kind of need others to bounce those things off of. Uh, it was still just me and Antarctica and my tent, exactly as it had been for the previous two months. So there was no sense of um, triumph. It was, um, yeah, just me and Antarctica for 24 hours where I wasn't in a state of fear Um, and that was really lovely it was almost I want to say it was like me making peace with Antarctica which sounds really pretentious but um, you know we'd had a bit of a troubled relationship me and Antarctica (laughs) for the previous two months and so it was just you know a moment to sit with Antarctica and really appreciate where I was and say my goodbyes and and, and then they came to um, and when the plane came to a stop the first thing that came out the door was a box of red wine (laughs) (laughs)
2: We ask every guest, felicity, who their cult hero is.
5: Uh,
2: and it means oh, different things to ask, different people. I wish you uh, told
5: me that so I could think about oh, it. That's, okay. we, we, that's really sneaky.
2: Yeah, we can we can edit out any pauses. <laughs>
5: <laughs> <laughs> oh my cult hero. What 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 definition of cult hero though? Who is my hero? I have so many heroes, it's hard to narrow it down. I was asked to write a book a bit of a while ago that was about the lessons that we can learn from explorers in history. And uh, the publisher gave me the 15 explorers I was supposed to write about. And I was like, I'm only going to write these books, this book if I can choose my own. Hmm. And they're like, oh, no. you know. So in the end, we negotiated half. So I was allowed to choose half of them. And so I put in all my heroes. Um, but actually... The half that I didn't get to choose, it was an opportunity to go and learn about some of these people that you think you know about and you really don't. And one of them was Neil Armstrong first man to step on the moon we all think we know neil armstrong we know the story very familiar character but i had to you know research his life and find out more about him oh my goodness what a spectacular man um just the humanity in every decision he ever made uh, is totally inspiring and incredible uh, but then there were so many in the course of you know writing that i got to d- rediscover amelia earhart you know i kind of wasn't that fussed about the, you know i didn't find that particularly when she got lost I like, You know, what's inspiring about that? But then, you know, I I had the opportunity to kind of really get to know her story and incredible decisions that she made and, you know, what are you willing to risk? And this fine line between adventure and madness, you know, so much of how we view... The decision somebody has made is with hindsight you know mm. if she had made that journey we would be celebrating her as one of the most amazing aviators mm. um, so was she wrong in making that decision to go it's it's really interesting yeah, um, but-, but then one of my favourite favourite heroes is one that no one's ever heard of Gudruda, the far travelled I live in Iceland these days so yeah. this is why I'm so familiar with this we all now know that the Vikings discovered the new world before Christopher Columbus right Um And one of the people that went on these early journeys across to North America uh, was um, a Viking woman called Gudrida. And she's always been depicted as just, you know, oh, she was just a wife that got taken along. But when you learn about her story, um, you know, she bankrolled the whole thing. You know, the (laughs) ships belonged to her. She had the idea. She sort of goaded her husband into doing it. And uh, she went over there for one of these journeys, became a very wealthy woman in the process. And she had the first European child uh, born in North America and you're like oh my goodness now that I am a mother myself and have given birth you know the thoughts of this (laughs) she goes across this ocean she was shipwrecked I don't know about three or four times in her life but she still you know wanted to go across this ocean um, live in this small colony with a band of vikings and you know had a child with no help whatsoever you know yeah. and then came back and yeah became a hugely successful woman that was really respected within early icelandic uh uh society so you know a- an amazing amazing woman so any of those amazing. any of those three amazing. but i could give you a list of probably 50 to 100 but uh yeah
4: that's <laughs> fantastic
2: that's been a real privilege for us to <laughs> listen yeah, to you, you so much. You talk. It, it's incredible.
4: Yeah, is there anything you'd like to plug whilst you're here? Is there anything?
5: No, I haven't got anything to plug. Um, Well, hopefully the last leg of this expedition to... uh, We won't be going to the North Pole, but we Mm. will be getting as far north on the Arctic Ocean as we possibly can, and that will be in April. So you can follow our progress on our website, which is called bignorthpole.com. Big North Pole, amazing. Uh, And see how how we do with the polar bears and the sea ice.
2: (laughs) Amazing. Incredible. Thank
5: you so so much much. for coming in. Uh,
2: Uh, Pleasure. Amazing, amazing, amazing. (laughs) Fucking hell. And that's a, that's a genuine one. <laughs> Not to say the previous haven't been. No, they were they were genuine, but that was a, I can't believe she's given <laughs> us her time. If you're listening to this right now, yeah. You'll be feeling exactly how we feel right now
4: because you've just experienced that chat that yeah. we've just
2: had. Yeah. just she's just an unbelievable person and yeah. so giving of her time and and done so much. How how do you think you'd fare out there, Connor? You I know, was
4: start to, was sort of thinking that actually and like I was thinking about that I've, I've been to Lapland yeah before and that was cold. I did want to mention it to felicity i did, I did want to say like um i've been to Lapland before, and it was cold, and you know when you can sort of almost feel the ice in your nose yeah
2: yeah yeah, and obviously you've you've had a, you've got a nice hot chocolate there you 've got the air yeah. spring in and yeah. Yeah, do you know what I mean? You've been to them extremes, you've been there, you've done, yeah, I've it, done it. And you didn't kinda of want to bring it. i get that. I've just been yeah, um, I've been just been to Winter Wonderland at Centre Park's oh, yeah, nice. Sherwood. Yeah. It got down to minus one at one point. So And how how were because obviously you were with who you were there with? With family. Yeah, okay. Lucky we had the comfort of the uh executive lodge which I'd booked. So uh Very nice. Yeah. So listen, we've all been there, we've been to the extremes. Yeah. And uh I tell you what was it bloody extreme, the bloody cost of it. <laughs> um, but yeah we, uh, listen, um, we've got more chats like that coming up as well Connor We're we have just, indeed you keep getting these guests man I don't right. know how you're doing it I don't know you just charm and, and goodwill and that's what this podcast run, <laughs> runs on this is exactly what this podcast runs I on having said that if people did want to donate financially they can do that they know, can actually, we've got the goodwill and the charm yeah that's in. but also finance. let's get a bit of yeah. financial in
4: I mean our 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 ideal situation is goodwill and charm comes from us and the guests, yeah. Financial donation from the listeners—that's where,
2: where they come in, yeah, yeah. Or sponsors, sponsors. you know. Fliss was talking there about sponsors, sponsor. yeah. You know, people, you know, you might not be able to fund a polar expedition, but what you can fund is us two, us two, yeah. and our, our lifestyles. Yeah. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week. Conrad, um, kind of, it's been a privilege and a pleasure. Likewise.